You're listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May you be challenged and encouraged by this message. Having the affections of your heart stirred towards greater love and understanding of the person and work of Jesus Christ. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami. If I'm new to the Bible, I think I go like this. If I'm new to the Bible, where should I start reading? Uh, it's, a, it's an understandable question, completely reasonable. A lot of times, if you think about it, if you get a new book, like where do you begin every new book? You begin in the first page of the book. And so a lot of times people start like that, reading the Bible, and then they get maybe a book or two, and they're like, okay, I don't know what we're talking about here. I don't know what they're even talking about. I don't know what, like, the people are weird, and that just, I don't understand it, and like, so then you kind of typically go maybe to the middle of the book, middle of the book like, okay, Psalms. Like, that seems poetic and nice, and I feel like I can relate to some of the human experiences. Where do I recommend people go to the Bible, and there's something for yourself or to share with a, a, a coworker, maybe even do it with them. Start with, I recommend people start with one of the records of the life of Jesus, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. Uh, Mark is the shortest of the four, 16 chapters. They call it sort of the newspaper, which a lot of you even know what a newspaper is. Um, the newspaper uh, gospel, because 40 different times in those 16 chapters, Mark says, uses the word immediately, immediately, immediately. He's just turning over the life of Christ very quickly. But it's a great way for you or a friend of yours to be able to know the teachings of Jesus for yourself. Not play the telephone game at the Bible, read it for yourself. Um, then if you want to go from beyond from the book of, of, of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John, then maybe you could go into like the book of Romans, which many have said is like the New Testament summarized. It's a letter to a church in the city of Rome, still around today, not the church, but the city. A lot of churches there now. And it's a group of new Christians, uh, very similar to, to you know, many of us here in Miami in this church at Grace Church. Um, and that's the second place I'd begin. And then uh, more I could go beyond that, but that at least gives you a starting point as far as where to begin. Okay. Um, next up is, uh, how do we know if certain hardships are because we are living under God's discipline or simply life's spiritual trials? Okay, so that's a great question related to tonight's sermon. Um, well, I mean, I think some of that is kind of like you can kind of reverse engineer. Where How do we get here? Um, I want to be very careful to say you can't necessarily uh, know for sure the mind of God. When God does something, He typically does it for a thousand reasons. You maybe can know of a couple of them. Uh, so it's not just one simple reason. However, you can know what God's decreed will is as far as His desire for you. And are you doing that or are you not? And do you, are you having a result that comes from a decision you've made? Uh, that's called reaping and sowing. That's called, that's called cause and effect. That's a natural way that God has created the world Sometimes in his mercy, God withholds what should be a natural result. Uh, you made a bad decision with money. It was a sinfully motivated decision. And you have a consequence that you're probably going to get from that. But then you don't get the consequence. It's not God saying, I didn't see it. It's okay. You can get away with it. That's God being merciful to you. That you might by your conscience or by the leading of the scriptures learn otherwise. But other times, he might indeed direct the hardship of your life to teach you as a discipline. I, there was a time in my life, I referenced it uh, last week in my sermon, uh, where I was not walking with the Lord during my college years for, for about a two-year window of time, 
and God disciplined me, and I just knew that it was because in my conscience that I was running from the Lord, and the Lord was purposely frustrating all of my plans. And I just felt that. I felt the joylessness of it. I felt the tastelessness of it. And I just knew in my conscience was being bothered that I just was being a godless young man who was not being faithful to the Lord or his people and his word. So I restored that, came back and repented of my sins and my rebelliousness and said, God, forgive me for my wayward life. And it wasn't like then the next day everything was great and I got all my friendships and all my... No, I just cared more about the things I should be caring about and walked accordingly. Uh, part of that question is, how is it just spiritual trials? It could very much be that. The Lord does allow things for our good, and we see that in James. Chapter 1, consider it all joy when you encounter various trials because of what they produce in you. So look at the Scriptures. What do the Scriptures reveal? Is there a point for conviction, your conscience being informed there? And ask a friend. Bring a good godly friend into the conversation so you don't have to kind of come to this conclusion on your own. And then if nothing else, that friend will pray for you in that season of that difficult situation. Okay, next question is, what is the role of the Holy Spirit once our faith is perfected in Christ? Now, let's talk a little bit about this question because when you turn them in like that, I don't get to like dialogue with you a little bit more to kind of get more understanding. So I'm kind of working a little bit blind here. So my apologies if I miss what you're trying to ask, but I'm going to try to frame it as best as I can and answer accordingly. So what happens when you become a Christian is that you are forgiven of everything you have done and you will do, and you are declared righteous. You are perfect. You have been declared as a, adopted as a child of God, and you are indeed perfect in Christ. So God will never love you more tomorrow because of what you do today, because you can't add to the works that Jesus has already accomplished for you and been credited to you. Well, then, should we... Should we like, do whatever we want now? Like, we, so it's okay to sin? Well, no, that would never be a response if a person wants to please God. So what's the role of the Holy Spirit? Well, the role of the Holy Spirit is several different things. Ephesians chapter 1 says the Holy Spirit has been given to every, Christ, every Christian in their heart. The Holy Spirit has been given as a pledge, as a seal of their inheritance. So part of the Holy Spirit's job is to help Christians be assured of their salvation by them walking in Christ. Now, Part of the Holy Spirit as well, Jesus said himself in John 14, verse 16, that he would leave and another would come and he would be a comforter. He would help you and he would guide you in truth. So the Holy Spirit for Christians today are like this. They are positionally perfect before the Lord, but they're practically still growing in light of that identity in Christ. So the Holy Spirit, third member of the Trinity, given to you as the pledge of your inheritance, is helping you, comfort you, and convict you. And we also see in Romans, for example, the Holy Spirit actually helps you in prayer. With groanings too deep for words, the Spirit of God intercedes as Christ the Son is advocating for you as the Holy Spirit is even involved in that prayer life of yours. It's prompting you and leading you. So the Holy Spirit has an active role in the life of every single Christian you can also grieve the Spirit, Thessalonians says. Grieve the Spirit is when you are knowingly disobeying what the Scripture is saying to do. Your conscience is telling you what to do based upon the teaching of Scripture, and you keep going against it. It's what the Bible calls searing your conscience, like taking an iron, putting it on your hand, and burning your hand. You keep doing it over time. You'll burn the nerve endings, and when you put your hand on the stove, your hand will be burning, and you won't even know it because you won't feel it, but you'll smell it. True story, not with my life, just to be clear. 
That'll happen in your heart spiritually if you keep shutting down the Holy Spirit's leading from the Spirit of God, from the Word of God. So that can help you in that respect. Okay, um, next question here. What is the difference between gossip and counsel? Can you gossip while seeking counsel? That's a good question. I like this question because it gets into kind of the nuance of what we're talking about here. So here's kind of a good test. When you are relaying information about each other, let me word that sentence differently. Here's a good test. When you are relaying information to each other about others, the test is this. Why is a person telling another person that information? Are they sharing that information with them because they have a shared responsibility and relationship with them and they will participate with them in pursuing interacting and caring? Do they... Do they know this as a point of like, listen, I have been in a similar situation with a similar type of person, and here's my counsel. So gossip comes when you are giving unnecessary information to individuals about other people that does not need to be shared. It's not edifying. It's not building up. In fact, if anything, gossip is more often an expression of your own personal insecurity, that you are kind of brokering information, really kind of almost a display of your pride of what you know and you're telling other people about. Slander is one step further is when you start eshing judgment calls against such people. It's sort of easily to see. And the truth is, we're always so much more inclined to see the sins of other people's lives than our own. Counsel is saying, listen, I'm bringing this to you, and I might not even need to bring to you the person's name. That might not even have any bearing on the situation to ask you counsel. But here's the situation. I need some help from you can you help me think, because I've never done this before, or I'm so close to this person, or I'm not quite clear what the Scripture says on this, but I, I don't think that this is something that they would be doing if they're going to honor the Lord. Can you help me think this through so that I know what I'm going to do and respond? I, I'm taking responsibility. I'm not trying to low-key give it to you like, hey, could you go talk to them? I have people do this with me all the time as a pastor, all the time. Like, I am like the chief gossip recipient at local church. Not intentionally, but people are like, yo, did you know? Well, now that you do, shouldn't you go deal with that? And I'm like, actually, my job is to actually help you know how to deal with that. Like, that's not what I meant. That's not what I meant. I was hoping that we kind of hired you to be that fixer. Like I am, fixing you, trying to get away from caring for them. So the idea is counsel. So then what does the person who's the counselor do left? They pray. They pray for you. They pray for this person because they want to build up the body of Christ. They care about the preservation of the unity of the saints. So there's some ideas there. And again, more could be said, but there you go. Okay. Um, okay, let's see. Let's have a more lighthearted one. What type of music do the pastors slash elders of Grace Church personally like and listen to? Well, I am not a representative of Ronald Perez or Chris Juday, but we're close enough friends that I could tell you Ronald's favorite music, most commonly played in the Spotify account, is polka. No, it's not actually at all. But while he was in college, I love sharing this about Ronald. While he was in college, he was a part of the salsa group which isn't a big deal when you're in Miami, but it's a big deal when you go to college in North Carolina. 
It was, it was all of the Miami expats living in North Carolina who would get together. Ronald listens to all types of music. Chris is the most musically diverse person on the planet. I will often text Chris, my music is feeling rather dry. Can you give me some stuff? And he'll send me things I didn't even know existed. He sent me a Christian Nigerian woman from New Zealand who had trap music. I was like, that even exists? Chris Jude, if you ever want to music on any, in any kind of possible range of, of genre, he is your guy. Me, I do it all except country music. I don't care for country. My wife likes country, which I suppose is why we're so wonderfully matched up together. Um, I study a lot, if you're interested in the Holy of Holies, what it's like, I study a lot to EDM. You know what EDM is, then I suppose you're dating yourself at that point, I don't know. All right, so let's move on to something more redemptive. Um, what if my household of my, if the household of, if the head of my household is living in sin, how should I respond? Now, I need to, I'm not doing a good job putting it up. Okay, here we go. The head of my household is living in sin. How should I respond? Great question. Obviously, it's coming from a wife, and I wanted to say to you, I appreciate the heart behind that. I think it, it, it largely depends upon what the sin is and how much you are being asked to participate in it or are aware of it and are consciously bound to it. So I think wives and husbands are sinners, just to be very clear. Um, if you have a Christian husband and a Christian wife, which would be what God intended to come together to be not unequally yoked, but to be brought together in marriage, a Christian man and a Christian woman, then the idea would be that they would be brought together with a shared commitment to honor the Lord. And you can certainly have situations and perhaps even seasons where you can have one or the other person who is living in a particular area of sin as taught by the Scriptures and you're trying to figure out how to address them. I would say, think of it like this. Though that is your husband, that is also still your brother in Christ. And you can bring that concern to them as you would any other brother, sister in Christ, humbly, all the things I said earlier, and how do I address this? How do I care? And so you're saying, hey, listen, I want to be a loving wife to you. I want to help you in the same way that I would want you as my husband to help me. And this is a situation that I've observed, not, not isolated, not a one-time deal. Hey, 1 Peter 4, 9, love covers a multitude of sins. That's understandable. We're talking repeated, habitual, ongoing, undeniably, biblically violating scripture. How can I help you as a wife? Because this is the concern, and I'm worried that the more you do it, the more consequence you're going to have, including searing your heart. It's not going to bother you anymore. Now, the husband responds if not then, later, wonderful. If not responding, then I think you can ask the question, are there other godly people in our home relationship? Meaning, know my husband, know me. That, you know, ideally, if you're part of the same local church, which is how this should be working, ideally, then you'd get other people involved. Say, man, can you help me in this conversation? It might be me. A lot of times, couples get in these kind of conflicts. We could use some counseling here. We could use some objectivity and some accountability here. But a lot of times, wives are in situations with husbands where there's no accountability. And you can only take it so far. I would say don't be discouraged. Remember 1 Peter 3 about how Sarah interacted with her husband Abraham and how she won him without even a word. 
And there's an opportunity there for the opportunity by your example, not just by your exhortation and concern, but your example of your own godliness to soften hard hearts of rebellious husbands. And that's a process. And I, again, I'm giving marriage counseling in the context of about 60 seconds with lots of nuance needed and more context, but I hope that can at least give you some framework of, of considerations. A few more, and then the rest, we can just go out to dinner together afterwards and we can talk about it. Uh, is it a sin to wear makeup? Somebody's asked this question, is it a sin to wear makeup? Um, I, I thought I put that up. I don't know where it went. Did I, did I, I maybe just removed it. Okay, so that was a question. Is it a sin to wear makeup? I do not think it's a sin to wear makeup. Um, but I realize some of you maybe come from different religious traditions, uh, very conservative Pentecostal churches, very extreme maybe Mennonite backgrounds, or maybe extreme or, um, or uh, Wesleyan traditions where you are told to wear makeup is to adorn yourself worldliness to attract the eyes of others and that you should instead adorn yourself with a godly heart. And so what they're doing there is they're taking texts like 1 Timothy 2 about the concern about women braiding themselves with their hair and adorning themselves with gold and saying, hey, you should have no type of external representation to in any way present yourself because that's worldly. And some, like most of you are like, what is he even talking about? There's actually people who've been raised to be taught like this. And I'm saying thinking the best of such counsel that was given sometime in the past, probably well-intended, but misguided and eventually legalistic as to how it's applied. I think women are given the freedom that they have to adorn themselves appropriately, modestly, reasonably, expressions of culturally what it looks like. And every culture is different. You don't have to travel the world much to realize what it looks like to express yourself in a way that is reasonable and appropriate not as some central seductress that you're trying to just draw the attention of every man. That's a concern. You probably all know what that's like. Instead, reasonably and responsibly. All right, there was that question, so thank you. Probably Judah, you found that. All right, maybe one or two more. Um, man, why do you guys show up at the last minute with all these questions? We started off the Q&A, and then we had five. Um, If I have buddies, okay, let me put this up. If I have buddies that don't believe in Christ and I tell them the word and they don't care about Jesus, or what do I say? What do I do then? Okay. Um, first of all, let me just commend you for having friends that you're talking to about Jesus. There's a lot of Christians who have friends that never make it that far in conversation. So I just want to just stop right now and just encourage you and affirm you and just tell you how proud of you I am that you are willing to be known as not just a world religion Christian by way of religious association, but one who actually like believe Jesus' teachings are true and should be told to others and as a gift of friendship that you explain that. So I just want to commend you for that. Now the question is, what if I'm telling them but they're not believing? Well, a couple of things to just think about briefly. First of all, Recognize sometimes you can come at conversations a number of ways. So think about a conversation as a room. And that room has many doorways. Sometimes if you keep trying to walk in that room, the same door, but it's locked. You're like, I can't get in the room. And you're like, well, you, you know there's other doors in here, right? Like the sanctuary. There's like all kinds of doorways. Like every time I come to that door, it's locked. Like, well, you know, they're like, that's unlocked, that's unlocked, that's unlocked, that's unlocked. That might be locked. So you got other opportunities. My point is in conversation, Sometimes you can get to these conversations through other doorways of topics. 
One of the most common ways I get to conversation with people who otherwise don't want to talk about Jesus is trials, suffering, pain. And the gateway conversation I have with them is about prayer. Can I pray for you? Or another way which I talk about is just what I'm loving, what I'm living for, what I enjoy. When I go to hang out with some friends tomorrow morning and they ask about my weekend, they know what I'm going to be talking about in some form or fashion. I call them like what he did on Sunday. But I also want to be clear by way of reasonable expectation, you cannot solve the riddle for every single person that you can unlock the door in time with enough words, enough ways, they will say, you know what? This is wonderful. Thank you for sharing the gospel with me. Thank you for telling me who Jesus is. I want to give my life to Christ. And it, and it wouldn't happen if it wasn't for you. There's some of your friends, I pray, will say that to you one day. Others of your friends, due to life and circumstance, will go on, and one day you won't be friends. But God will bring somebody else in their life along the way. Because as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, one man plants, another man waters, but God causes the growth. Paul the apostle recognized the limitation of what he had. And may I remind you, by way of odd encouragement, there is no greater communicator of the good news than the Son of God himself. And look how many people rejected him of who he gave his life for who he served and loved and cared for, who he pursued and served. So in that sense, if you feel that rejection personally and painfully, you're not alone. Trust the Lord's work in their life, and you don't have to ever stop praying for them. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Church Miami. May God draw you nearer to Him through His Word. If you'd like to check out more resources or donate to this ministry, please visit gracechurch.miami.